Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Bamboo Wind is a love story in seven parts. It is also an ambitious multimedia project that springs from the poem of the same name and taps into the talents of a team of artist contributors. Among them, Shali Comerford, a choreographer I interviewed in episode 48 of Artist Soapbox, a pair of actors, a dance ensemble, three photographers, a composer, and the guest on today's episode, Coke Ariel. Now in his seventh decade, Coke Ariel has been making art in many forms as an actor, director, painter, sculptor, poet, photographer, designer, and writer all of his adult life. He is the author of the poem Bamboo Wind, the creator of the bamboo sculptures that will form the environmental labyrinth during the performance, and the producer. You can catch the Bamboo Wind Project January 17th through 20th at The Fruit in Durham. I'll include ticket links to Bamboo Wind in the show notes, as well as a much longer bio for Coke. I'd like to give a special shout-out and thanks to Tim Walter at the Durham Fruit for cultivating such an impressive and versatile performance space for local artists. If you haven't been there yet, I encourage you to go and support that venue, give your thanks to Tim Walter, and then keep going back. There are many magical moments in this episode, including opening and closing with original poetry written and read by Koch. We discuss the purpose and meaning of art, how to translate a poem into dance, music, and photography, and art as a vehicle for communicating passion, emotion, and what's really important in our lives. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Koch. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I am thrilled to be here, Tamara. Although it's a great difficulty getting your name right, for some reason I still have the Russian Tamara in my head. I like the way that sounds. So Tamara and I will be doing it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That is a whole new persona for me. Would you please start us off with a poem? I will. In fact, it seemed appropriate if if you have a whole project that revolves around poetry to start Mm. with a poem. This one has nothing to do with the project. The Transit of Beauty. Warm rain, the kiss of cool air, soft light seeping through the clouds, my orchid glowing in the gentle light, their petals, translucent butterflies of color, Light rows of lavender perched above green leaves. I sit in my poet's lair on a bamboo floor and fill my eyes with the quiet beauty of the morning light. Perhaps my work today is but to preserve this moment of beauty in memory. Beneath the sun and moon of our days, the only beauty of permanence is memory. Thank you so much. I love opening with a poem. It feels 
like an artist version of a prayer, like an invocation. And it's a thank you so much for sharing that. It's very reminiscent, I think, of the poetry that you've written for Bamboo Wind, which is what we're going to talk about today. And I know we're not going to read that poetry, but I think folks will get kind of a sense of the flavor. So I love it. Thank you so much. Let's talk about the Bamboo Wind Project. Could you give us a sense of the scope of this? Yes, you've got an hour or two. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> well, about two years ago, I uh, saw Tim Walter's space, warehouse space, the fruit that he's converting into uh, a local arts venue. And I began to think, how could we help Tim draw as wide a audience over here as possible? And for some reason, an old poem of mine, Bamboo Wind, came to mind. I think I wrote this in about 2004. It's, um, it's a relatively long poem. It's about seven, eight pages long. It's a very passionate love poem. Uh, this couple who keep appearing in each other's dreams in this mythical bamboo forest. And it's all about longing and desire. And I wondered, what if we took this poem as a theme and we tried to explore it in a number of different art forms? And so I came up with the idea of creating a bamboo forest uh, that would be like a labyrinth with a path that you would have to wander through. And in this forest, there would be seven groves or openings. Seven because the poem itself is divided into seven cantos. And as you entered each one of these groves, there would be a canto of the poem hanging on a large black banner from ceiling to floor with one canto in it, written on it, handwritten, in addition to that, the space would be filled with bamboo sculpture. Because I've been making bamboo sculptures for about four or five years and have played with bamboo all of my life, which is another story mm -hmm. we may get back to. Uh, I'm a Southerner. We digress. Everything is a story. <laughs> it's all connected. It's, it's our heritage, mm -hmm. storytelling. So there would be these bamboo sculptures, one or two sculptures in each of the spaces. And then I thought, well... I'm a photographer. I'm a many things, but uh, one of the things I have been as a photographer, what if, because you can't do everything yourself, I recruited several photographers and gave them the poem and said, you don't have to illustrate the poem or recreate it. You can if you want to, but it's your theme would you be interested in exploring this as a theme and creating a slideshow of, you know, five to ten minutes in length, trying to see what you what would come? And so I very carefully, with advice from uh, some other people, handpicked three photographers that I thought would be appropriate for exploring this particular poem uh, and whose work I felt like had the level of craftsmanship mm -hmm. that would, you know, give us a certain amount of security that something good was going to come out of it, and who were in a position in their careers 
where they just, you know, they didn't necessarily only need to do something for money, that they were possibly be looking for artistic ideas that were new and unusual that might be fun to explore. And so I picked these three photographers and basically gave them permission to play, which is a lot of what I think art is. And we should probably get back to them more specifically later. But uh, so you'll wander through this grove. You'll see the sculptures. You'll read the poem in these large banners. You'll have about 10, 15, 20 minutes worth of slideshows. And as you exit, you will come into a theater space also completely surrounded in bamboo. So that in essence, you have another larger bamboo grove where we will have an evening-length dance concert also in seven sections, one for each canto of the poem. Why a dance? This is crazy. I'm a theater guy. I'm a director. I am not a choreographer. I should not be doing a dance. I should be doing, you know, a theatrical visualization of this poem. I don't know, but it was a dance. Well, this presented another problem because obviously I needed a choreographer, you know, and I needed a choreographer that would be uh, a good match for this poem, which is a very particular, uh, very sensual sort of style. Mm -hmm. And really there were only about three or four choreographers of note locally that I even would consider talking to this about it and talking with all of them and seeing who was available and seeing whether they thought it matched their style or not, everybody kept saying, Sholly Comerford. Sholly mm. Comerford. She's the sensual choreographer. So I went to Sholly. I read the poem to her. Thankfully, she loved it and signed on. Mm. So we have this relatively large, sprawly project. I think we were up to 16 or 18 artists of one side or another involved in it. When you add the photographers, uh, you know, the lighting designers, the costumers, mm -hmm. the dance troupe, the choreographer, the photographers. I've said that already, I think. And you uh, also have a musician, a composer. Yes. Yeah. This, was, this, was a, this was a difficult, difficult element and a late coup. We, we started out, um, for some reason, I felt like I wanted the, the cello, the voice of the cello. And, um, and I don't know why, because what does that have to do with bamboo forests and jungles? N nothing in particular, or, you know, I think of, um, I think of a lot of this poem as, as coming, f uh, although there's bamboo everywhere, of coming from the East, from Asia, from China, from Japan, from India, uh, in some ways, although, and, and there's one part in the poem where we say, oh, we compose poems of uh, haiku as if we were Japanese, knowing full well that we are not. Japanese, you know, and that and that uh, we have been influenced by all of these sources all over the world. Mm. You know? So I began looking for a musician, and we found one. We thought he could do it, and then his schedule went to heck in a handbasket, and he had to back out, and we looked, and we looked, and we thought we weren't going to find some. 
We were listening to the cello music of an old CD that I love of Maya Beiser. We were thinking, oh, my Lord, can we possibly afford that? Probably not. What are we going to do? And just within the last month to six weeks, Robbie Link said, I would love to do that. Mm. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like, Robbie Link? Really? We could get Robbie Link? We could afford (laughs) Robbie Link? Oh, my goodness gracious. How lucky can we be, you know? He's played with everybody. He plays bass. He plays cello. He teaches. He's taught at Duke. He's played with Mallarmé. He's played with the Emphys Symphony. My heavens. Mm. Wow. You know, and I was talking with with him just the other night, and I said, you know, we're just thrilled that you're doing this. And he says, you know, it's like funny, but five days before I got the call before this, I'm thinking, you know, I haven't done anything for myself in years, in years. I really need to do something that I want to do that's new and creative. And here comes this phone call. Mm. I mean, sometimes you just get lucky. If you can't be good, get lucky. You know, that's <laughs> That's worked my whole career. What can I say? <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope I'm good as well. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful win-win for everybody. I mean, everybody's getting something out of of the experience. And as you said, the opportunity to play and challenge themselves creatively is always a gift for an artist and not to be in charge. I mean, a lot of these people are contributors, but they're not ultimately in charge of the project, which I think is also often a relief for people who are who are working in the arts. But they may not be in charge of the project, but as a longtime producer and director, I believe in giving people the freedom. So if you, you know, we're not going to read it now because it's a page long, but if you go back and look at the guidelines and, you know, we do the old pirate, these are guidelines, Mm. not rules, uh, (laughs) You know, we're basically giving them control. And I'm saying, you know, you make the photographs, you pick the photographs, you order the photographs. If there's anything I cannot live with, I'll tell you, but I'm not going to select the photographs there. You have, you are in charge. This is your piece of the project, you know. And the same way with the dance. I said to Shiley, you know, I'm going to be there. I'm going to watch what you're going to do. I'm going to give you my opinions, and you are going to decide because you are the choreographer, not me. So a lot of what I like to do and always have, always have, is one, make the decision, but two, give people permission and freedom to create to, to make their to bring their vision of something to life. So what has this been like for you as the poet to hand over or invite people to interpret your work? How has that gone for you? Well, that is an interesting question. We're going to start the, with the first part of it, which is the poem itself. This is a very intense poem. And I never read it to a lot of people because I wanted, you know, I was like, I picked the people I read it to very carefully, you know. And uh, one of the people I read it to with my heart in my hand was my dear, dear friend, Mary Beth Thorin, 
who I think of as Superwoman. You know, she I met her in 1985 when she was at the Merchant Marine Academy. She got out of that. She drove oil tankers for Exxon. She never wrecked hers, thank you very please. <laughs> she went back to Harvard, got her business degree, went to England where she worked in a major advertising firm. Later, she became in charge of the digital transition of television, you know. Then she went to work for the Royal Bird Society and increased their membership by about 50 percent or something, you know, and is a, is a dear, dear, dear gay friend that I've known forever. And her BS meter is pretty high. <laughs> Mary Beth will tell you right. if she doesn't like something or if she thinks it's male chauvinist. Yes. Good to have a friend like that. Yes. Yeah. So hard in hand, I read this poem to Mary Beth and she said, I love it. It's a, it's, it's a love story. I love it. I thought I had it made at that point. The other big hurdle for me was I have, I I like to read my own poems. I'm conceited enough to think I do that well. I've spent, you know, years both on stage and on television and on national television in front of the camera as well as behind it and directed. I think I have an okay voice. Uh, you know, and I read very well. And this poem in particular, I have never had anybody else read it. And I could never imagine another voice reading it. And so my first thought is, well, first of all, we are going to integrate the poem into the dance. It's not just going to be a dance. It's going to have the poem integrated in it, which is a whole nother artistic kettle of fish mm. that's very difficult to fry, you know. So the poem's going to be read, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be on stage because I don't want to. I will, I'll record the poem and do voiceover. I thought, you know, we really, really should have people on stage reading it. And it really should be both a man and a woman, although the poem was originally written primarily in the male voice, although there's one big, important chunk Canto 2, where the maiden speaks, you know. So handing this poem to two actors was like a major heart stopper for me. Oh, my gosh. Fortunately, I got two fabulous actors, one of whom is Dorothy Brown, who's been around forever, uh, who I used to hire when I was, uh, you know, in the business, every chance I got to do on-camera and voiceover work. And the other one is the actor that goes by the name of Michael Foley, who has been, I've seen for 10, 15, 20 years on stage at Man Bites Dog and elsewhere, and it's like, I couldn't believe how fortunate we were to get these two people. And... uh it's interesting because it is both of them are very, very completely different from my voice. And so it's giving it a whole different, interesting life that didn't exist before. So that's the poem itself, you know. The dance, you know, I'm not a choreographer. It was in some ways easier for me to hand it to the choreographer. And again, I said... We're not going to dramatize the poem. This is not a literal recreation of the poem, although the poem is very literal with mostly 
It's not obscure. Mm -hmm. It is very literal images in it. We're not going to do that, you know. The poem is your theme and your inspiration. So if you hadn't seen the poem and read the poem or known it, you might not even necessarily put it together, you know. I think what she's doing, first of all, I'm, I'm loving what she's doing. I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Go faster, <laughs> but thank you. Yes. <laughs> the deadline looms, go faster. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm loving seeing that transition into one of what can be one of the most abstract and magical art forms which is a whole nother discussion about art, you know. How can something, how can a body moving through space, how can a body moving through air that is not telling a literal story bring you to tears? Mm. How can it do that? It's magic. I have no clue today, and I've seen a lot of dance, a lot of dance. And it's still magic to me when it happens. And, I, and, and so watching this come to life and happen is being a wonderful thing, you know. The photographers, man, I used to do photography. I started photography back in about 1970, no, before that, I think, 1960-something, you know, back in the days of film cameras and everybody shot black and white because you could develop it yourself and it was cheaper and you would turn your bathroom into a dark room <laughs> to make these things and print these things in the dark, you know. So I've done photography all of my life, even professionally later on, and then moved into videography, you know, so... This would be my dream project as a photographer. I would love to do this. I would love to have this poem to explore with models in bamboo forests or studios as a theme. But you just can't do it all. I don't have time, you know? And wouldn't it be fun to see what someone else did with it? I can tell you right now, I've seen two of the photographers work and out, I'm flabbergasted. Mm-hmm. It's good. It is good. There, you're going to like it if you like photography. The third photographer is still working on it, but he is an internationally known figure photographer. So I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to come. Can you mention the photographer's names so that we? Oh, you're going to test are? my memory. I'm an old guy. <laughs> yes, I think I can. You know. Let's start with Lynn Fleiss Necrason. Lynn, for years, was a commercial realtor. Although there was some art in her early background in college years, I believe, but then a number of years ago, but not so incredibly many, four, five, six years ago, she became to get interested in photography. When I first saw her work, I thought I was looking at incredibly beautiful watercolor landscapes. I'm like, this is just her sense of composition, her sense of color, her sense of of transparency of everything. It just, wow. Mm -hmm. Well, why pick her for a poem that's all about people? Well, she had done some dance work. She'd done at least one shoot where she had, uh, had photographed dancers, you know, and it just, and it seemed like 
the the craft and skill and beauty of her work. If she translated that to dancers, how could we lose? Right. You know, so I approached Lynn about this, and she was like very nervous about. It. She said, "Well, you know, I don't really work with people a lot." And I'm going, "Yeah, wouldn't that be a fun new challenge?" You know, in my voice, most seductive voice. Right. Oh, Lynn, that would be a really great new way for you to go. You know, and she bought it, <laughs> <laughs> and has done fabulous work. You know, Catherine Carter. Oh, I should say about Lynn, I think she's just been, is it she or Kat? I can't remember. One of them is just coming out in a new book, Six by Six. Oh, cool. Catherine Carter does a lot of black and white work, some color, but a lot of black and white and a lot of incredible montage work. And a lot of it seems like fairy tale settings or Knights of the Round Table mm-hmm. mythic theme somehow, you know, in these outdoor, indoor ruins and forests and whatever. And I was just absolutely entranced by her work and was thrilled when she said she would sign on to do this. And then, you know, there's our third guy. There's uh, Wojtek, Wojtek Wojcicki, Polish, real Polish, who's been in America as a scientist, most of his career as a scientist. Long ago, because he was a technician, got into uh, photography and got into the printing and development and uh, runs a business still in Chapel Hill. And he's the printer to go to if you have a photograph that you need printed in color or black and white, where you need subtlety and, and, you know, somebody who really knows what he's doing. But, He's also a known, an international prize-winning figure photographer. He does a lot of figure work. It's mostly what he's done in the way of photography. And it is just gorgeous. It is just, it is the human figure at its most appealing and beautiful form, I think. So are we lucky or what? Sounds like you have assembled an amazing team of artists, and that's really hard to do. So congratulations to you. I'm really curious about, and I asked a question similar to this, but I want to dig in Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Have you discovered anything about your poem, Bamboo Wind, after seeing it through other people's eyes? Things that you might not have known about it that you are now having an, oh, aha, I I see that now. Or a surprise, something that they picked up that you, you were surprised that they're kind of tracing. The short answer is no. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Say more about that. The long answer is it's wonderful to see it take on new life in different forms. So about the hidden meanings of the poem, no. But the new ways it can be brought to life the answer would be yes, you know. This is a poem that I've long thought that I would like to translate into some more physical form. Years ago, I think I wrote it in 2004, and at that point, you know, we had the internet, but it was still a relatively new thing. And in the early 90s, I had come up with an idea before the internet 
of creating a series of video poems. In other words, treating poetry much like music TV used to treat music, you know. Make a poem, a video poem, not where the guy or the woman is sitting there reading the poem, but where you're, you know, literally illustrating it or or turning it into a, a video form in some way. And I had made a couple of those, and I had thought back at that time that it might be an interesting business format. And then I got a job with the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I put that on the shelf for 20 or 30 or 50 years. I can't remember, you know, <laughs> because I just didn't. I'd made a couple of video poems back then, but had no, didn't have the money or the wherewithal or the time to do anything further about it. And this poem is very visual and very intense. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun to make a video poem out of this? And so I, I had, in fact, written a video script for the poem. But at that point, I was working in Washington, D.C. with the Department of Veterans Affairs, running a lot of their national um, uh, public relations shows. And there just was no time or no way. And at that point, every piece of video equipment that I personally owned all probably $100,000 or whatever worth of it was obsolete. You know, you could make a good boat anchor out of it, but not much <laughs> else. <you know? laughs> a piece of advice for video producers, never buy a camera. It's obsolete as soon as you buy it, you know. I know I've, I've done that too many times. I've disobeyed my own rule too mm. many times, you know. But I had thought, wouldn't it be fun to, to translate this into another form? I think that's part of what was somewhere in the back of my mind when I began to envision this as a larger project. Would how else could you do that, you know? I don't know why I decided to make a dance instead of a video poem, um, because obviously the dance is much more attuned to a live audience. Right. And I was envisioning it in the space, although certainly, you know, we could easily create the bamboo jungle there, hang the poems there, hang the slideshows there, and hang video projectors and do it that. But I, I, I wanted a, a really live elements there as well, something that would touch you physically through mm-hmm. that electrically charged space between us, you know. If it's good, there's an electrical <laughs> charge, right? Otherwise, right. it's like... A big air gap. Right, right. <laughs> so I think that was probably part of my thinking in translating it, you know. So it, it's just fascinating to uh, to see it become a se- three series of f- photographs and to see it become something I never envisioned it being a dance, you know. And the sculpture, I guess we should talk about the sculpture a yes, little bit. Yes, this is another way that you're contributing. To yes, Um I began making sculpture about four or five years ago. I live in the middle of downtown Durham, and we have a tiny, small garden at the edge of the city parking lot. We call it Tar Beach because there's all this black asphalt <laughs> there in front of our our bricked-up planters and garden. And people kept parking in front of it, even though it's a no-parking area, and breaking the plants and driving my wife crazy. And I thought, you know, someday I'm going to go into road rage and kill one of those cars or something. <laughs> I need to find another way to do that. I've played with bamboo all of my life. As a child of the South, there was always a bamboo patch somewhere. And we would get, you know, we would get pieces of bamboo to make our toy swords with or to make our spears with, or we would, you know, cut hunks of it to make 
cups with. I don't know why. And, you know, we used to play with toy soldiers back in those days. I don't know whether kids still do that or not. You know, so I had all these armies of toy soldiers. And, you know, I would build outrigger canoes and things out of bamboo and help make forts and stuff out of it. So I've, I've, I have a great love of bamboo and I've played with it all of my life. And I'm a sailor. Uh, I love boats and sailing, and I love rope and knot work, you know. You go look on my boat, and you'll see a certain amount of knot work that you couldn't pay me to do on your boat because it's too tedious, and yet I love doing it for myself. So in some ways, it was a natural to put bamboo and the cord and the knots together to create sculpture because I've also made paintings and sculpture as well as photographs all of my life. You know, I haven't made sculpture in a long time. So I made this huge bamboo sculpture that sits out back of my place in downtown Durham so they couldn't park their cars there. (laughs) But it certainly led to the thought, well, you know, a bamboo forest, I could fill it with bamboo sculpture, you know, which is an even more abstract art form. Mm -hmm. You know, none of my bamboo sculptures are literal pictures of anything. They are lines in space. How can compositions of lines in space, of bamboo and cord, touch us emotionally? How does art do that? Again, I have no clue. I have no clue. But I love trying to make it do that and to explore it and to to say, wow, boy, this really doesn't work, you know? Why doesn't it work? I don't know, but there's something that's not harmonious about the lines and the arrangements and the chords or something. Somehow you know if it works or it doesn't. If you're, you know, I think if you're any good, you know, to some extent, you don't know which one people are going to love or hate, you know, because even one that works, people can hate. But you have some sense of something actually visually holding people's eye and making them pay attention. And sometimes it evokes an emotional response on some level. And to me, these are just, these are things that in our lives that are magic. This is part of why we make art or do art or create art, is to create these moments in our lives that are just magical. They connect us with parts of our inside emotional life that in some way is the most important part of our lives. I should pause and let you think of another question. No, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful answer and a really great segue to talking about why we do this. (laughs) Why do we do this anyway? Um, You, in our, in our pre-interview communication, you sent me um, a very funny question that I'm going to read because, and I want to say, this is not my language. This is your language. You wrote the question, why would a retired old coot with two boats undertake such a huge project? And so I think this opens up two questions. And one is, why are you undertaking this project at this time in your life? But also, why do we do this anyway when we could do all these other things? Why spend our time making art? 
when we don't when we wouldn't be required to remain to raise thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, from a guy who has no connections with rich people or money. But you know, it's like, okay, what's the budget from this? Oh my goodness, we got to pay ten dancers, you know, yeah. we got to pay a, a musician, we got lighting. I don't know. It's it's it is the most interesting question. I think I started making art as a poet when I was a senior in high school, and I have written poetry all of my adult life, sometimes more, sometimes less. I've never published other than when I was uh, in college, something got published in the you know school literary magazine, but I never tried to publish because it sort of seemed like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. You know, <laughs> you were going you're going to send out 100 poems, get 99 rejection, one was going to get published, you'd get $50 and 50 people would read the poem, you know, it's like and so it wasn't a way to wealth and money and it might have been a way to some sort of fame and I don't know why but it, in my youth I was not enamored of fame at all. As a retired old coot, I would certainly love to have a little bit more recognition <laughs> than I have now. I'm also very glad that a lot of those poems from my youth weren't published as I look back on them. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that was a really good decision, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that my my poems have matured and grown as I have. I like to think that I've matured as I've grown. We don't know. It also brings up another question, you know. Do you think with age we become wise or just more foolish? I think we become more authentic. To ourselves. I, I'm 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 voting both ends of that yeah. scale. I think I'm both more foolish and maybe a little wiser. I don't know, but it's it's a it's you know it's one of those paradoxical questions, right? Mm. So I started making poetry, and in a way, I I viewed it as cheaper than going to a psychiatrist. You know, <laughs> it was a it was a way to look at the world and to look at life through a particular framework and figure out what you really thought about things figure out how the the emotions that were there or the incidents or the whatever were there actually shaped your life and how to and what you needed to do and how to respond uh, to those kind of things i got into photography fairly early i i got into painting and sculpture fairly early when i was in college i you know, continued the photography pretty much throughout my life. I didn't do a lot more painting and sculpture through most of my adult life because it just wasn't time to do but so much stuff. You know, but I I, I founded and ran and directed a theater, um, designed stage sets. I designed all of our posters and programs and whatever. So my life has always touched on the arts in one way or another, and they've they've always been important to me. And when I try to think about why, I go back to college and a brilliant professor of mine bringing two books to mind by a, a woman named Susan K. Langer. One was called Problems of Art and the other one Form and Function. I think those books are probably would be an interesting thing to look at in today's conception of art. Her basic premise was that art was the language that we created to talk about our passions and our emotions. If you look at any other discipline, particularly the sciences, they all have these huge languages, you know, words and words and words and words, you know. If you look at the language of our emotions, 
there are really only a handful of words, love, hate, anger, sadness. And they're so broad, they don't mean anything. I love, I love my house, I love my dog, I love my wife, I love flowers. Those are all different things that have different meanings. They're so broad, they really don't, you know, when I say I love something to you, that's like, okay, that's a fact. It's not really conveying anything that's important to you. And I think in a lot of ways, art is how we do that mm-hmm. by t- by creating a play that takes you through an emotional set of experiences, we can begin to understand the emotions and you know the passions that have shaped somebody else's life that they have had to deal with to contend with you know in the face of disaster or problems or difficulties you know and i often think that you know you can rate the success of your art by its ability to translate to someone who is the most different from you if I can pick somebody from a different culture, a different background, a different life experience, and they can look at a piece of art that I create and go, wow, that touches me, or wow, I understand that, then you have succeeded to the max in doing what art should do. Mm. Communicate from the artist to the viewer something important about our lives. And to the exact extent it fails to do that, which all art does, that's how far short you've come from perfection, you know. And of course, you can't achieve perfection because what's going to appeal to one person isn't going to appeal to another, you know. When I think on art and why we do it, I think it's an attempt to tell somebody about the things that are really important inside our lives. How does that translate to music and to dance and to painting and sculpture that can be in totally abstract? I really do not know. It, it's, it's, it's a total form of magic. You know, how can Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or Ninth Symphony or how can Tchaikovsky's Pathétique make us feel so swept away and destroyed and sad? It's only vibrations in the air and yet it does and to and to be privileged to explore that to try to make that happen is just a wonderful thing you know and i'm an old retired coot i got time on my hands and i get up in the morning and i look at my orchid and uh, you know I, I can decide maybe i'll go play with some bamboo sticks and cord today or maybe i'll uh, See if I can inspire some photographers, or maybe there are thoughts that are troubling me that I need to take up my pen and examine on paper or in the form of a poem. Two questions. One question is, do you feel like offering these various different art forms increases the accessibility to this emotional experience that you're offering audience members? Because there are so many paths into it. Let's start with that one. I don't know, but I hope so. It would be our hope. You know, because 
this thing is neither fish nor fowl. It's it's an odd amalgam of arts. How to present it is even a question, you know. If it were a dance, you would show up a few minutes before the dance started and sit down, you know. But it's an exhibit. It's an exhibit that could take you five minutes to go through if the poems and photographs don't mean much to you, or it could take you 30 minutes to go through, you know. So even how to present this thing is a conundrum to us. Our thoughts currently, and we'll see in a week or something when this opens, where our thoughts still are, is that maybe we will open the house an hour early so that people have leisure time to go through the labyrinth and see these things. And then somehow when it's time for the dance to start, we'll get them out of the labyrinth and into the audience and probably remain open afterwards so that people can go back and see it. But the first interesting question is right there. You've got all of these different forms. You know, you would think that people who are interested in the arts are interested in the arts. Hmm, maybe. You know, people who love dance, love dance. How many times do they drive to Raleigh to see a sculpture exhibit? Not necessarily, you know. So it certainly is an opportunity to bring people who are interested in different art forms together and at least have different forms available for them to partake of if they choose to. So in that way, maybe it will increase accessibility. How you get anyone interested in the arts, I don't know. Obviously, the more you know about your emotional life and the more you know about how the arts can approach that and help you understand it, the more you're going to be able to understand it, you know. So somebody who comes in who really doesn't have much experience with dance, as my own stepson, who I'm hoping will come, doesn't, you know, is probably not going to experience on the level of somebody who loves dance, you know. But perhaps, if we are good, it will be curious enough to make them want to learn more. Mm -hmm. How you get them there in the first place, I don't know. You know, you appeal in every way you think you can, you know, and you, you try to see if there are audiences you can bring there. And that could probably consume a lot more bodies and people and money doing that than we have, than right. we would, that we would like to have more money to devote to promoting and, and reaching out to the community in ways that we probably wish we could and might not be able to. Do you think in terms of success for this project, in other words, have you thought about what it would take for you to consider this to be successful <laughs> when you get to the end? <laughs> I know. Yes. Uh, I don't go broke. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't have to spend too much of my money making this. You know, it used to be when I would do a, a video poem or art, I would be like, how much is this one going to cost me? I never thought I would make money off of art, you know, ever, ever. People buy art, really? I've, I've heard that rumor, you know? I hope it's true, you know? 
All of my sculptures will be for sale. Please take one home. My wife does not want them to come <laughs> home, you know. We might have to have a bonfire and set them right. on. No, so, dance so around the, first, the bonfire. Right? <laughs> exactly. Bring your marshmallows. We'll dance around the bonfire. We've got all this bamboo that needs to go away. And seriously, if you want bamboo, we're going to have several thousand square feet of hanging bamboo curtains that you may take home. <laughs> Otherwise, they might go into the chipper, you know. I don't know. Um, but to more seriously answer your question, you would love to reach thousands of people. We know we won't. We don't have enough seats to reach. We have four performances, you know, and a limited number of seats. We're going to reach a much, much smaller audience than we would ever hope. You know, we hope it goes worldwide and tours. Yeah, right, sure. Not really. I'll be glad when it's over. Right. <laughs> uh, success is that at least somebody finds value in it other than me. Success is that my artists are pleased with their work and feel like it's been a worthwhile experience for them. I don't know. Maybe my standards are too low. That sounds like a victory if all of those things happen. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about or cover before we wrap up? Want another poem? Is this, yeah. Can we close with a poem? We can. All right. So before we close, I just want to thank you so much for this conversation it's clear that we could talk for hours about all of the different ideas swirling around, but I'm very excited to see this work and I will have information for folks in the show notes so that they can buy tickets and make their plans to attend. Well, we're, th you know, we're thrilled to be here and we're, we're all grateful that this artist soapbox exists you know, because the 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 thing you you know you struggle with making art, but then getting people to it is the thing that artists hate to do. Right. You know, be an administrator, do a, be a publicity person, whatever. So, your your being here is is uh, definitely a benefit to the artist community, but to our entire community to make them aware of this. So, this is a new poem, and this one will possibly even be in the program. You never know. I wrote most of it, I think, the other night while I was watching a rehearsal. And it's called Dance. To keep the heart alive, I watch dance. The beauty of bodies, alive with vitality, vibrant with possibility. The incredible ability of bodies in motion to create beauty, to swell the heart, to imbue the future with hope. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out. <laughs>